You're listening to the Journeys of Scientists podcast put on by MSU WAMPS. These are casual conversations with graduate students in a variety of fields to learn about their experiences, research, and what brought them to where they are today. To keep up to date with future WAMPS events, be sure to check out our website at WAMPS.org and follow us on social media. We are MSU WAMPS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On this episode, we are joined by Osama Elion, who is a graduate student in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. His research interests are centered around astrobiology, focusing on an understanding life in the deep biosphere and how it can inform the search of life in places such as Mars and Europa, and designing the processes to sample and study these environments. His dissertation research focuses on studying the extreme living microbial communities of the Lost City's hydrothermal vents deep in the Atlantic Ocean. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Osama. Could you briefly introduce yourself? Was your area of study here at MSU? Sure. So I am a fifth-year PhD candidate in microbiology and molecular genetics. I work with Matt Shrink, uh, trying to study uh, extreme living organisms at the bottom of the ocean um, at a really cool site called the Lost City. And uh, that's really taken over my life for the past couple of years and probably for the next few years as well beyond my phd <laughs> oh very interesting so where's like roughly in the world where is this lost city so lost city is right in the middle of the atlantic ocean it's um uh right actually at the mid-atlantic ridge so where the two tectonic plates that sort of separate europe and uh north america spread apart and uh i believe it was actually called lost city because it's on top of uh, an undersea mountain called the Atlantis Massif. Uh, so it's uh, technically the lost city of Atlantis. Um, someone got a little bit of a creative uh, jolt with it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty far from uh, <laughs> any, any near point of land mm-hmm. uh, when you go there, for example. So it's a pretty isolated, hard to get to place away from the ship lane. So it's a very, uh, very austere very austere yeah. cool location okay and you said you're studying like microbiology so like where are you kind of like studying down here then yeah so um let's see there's there's a few few different things that are super interesting about the microbiology at lost city so um if you've seen documentaries that have talked about like hydrothermal vents or black smokers or things like that at the bottom of the ocean uh, there's a lot of cool documentaries that david attenborough has narrated Uh, along those lines. Um, A lot of those black smokers form from magma that sort of superheats all the ocean water in there, and then it blows up in these smokestacks. And so there's microbiology that's there. But the microbiology, the microbes that we're looking at, don't necessarily exist inside the vent. They exist outside because inside the vent is super hot. And we're talking like 300, 400 degrees Celsius. Lost City, the microbes that we're looking at actually live inside the vent because the vent is a different type of um, chemistry. It's called a serpentinite-hosted system. So as opposed to this 400-degree kind of superheated water that looks like black smoke coming out of the chimney stack, it's this super kind of shimmery, clear, slow-moving fluid. And it doesn't just form from magma. There's probably a magma source heating it. But a good chunk of the heat and chemistry that's there is formed just from chemical reactions that gives these microbes everything they need to survive. Uh, 
And this is a pretty unique environment for them to live in. It's not sort of the typical organic rich environment that you would expect to find a lot of microbes. It's very high pH. So uh, it's also very extreme in that uh, aspect. So really, we're trying to understand in this very unique chemistry (laughs) at the bottom of the ocean uh, that was also discovered accidentally. And there was a whole other story there. Um, how, how did these microbes evolve strategies to survive? Um, and that's what my, uh, boss was working on during his PhD and postdoc. That's what I guess I inherited in, in my PhD. And it looks like I'll be working on similar <laughs> things kind of moving forward as well. And, uh, yeah. So I guess the other cool part of why we're studying that microbiology and trying to understand it is um, some of this chemistry may be pretty common uh, in other places beyond Earth. So if we find living things here in this location um, and we identify and we've identified similar chemistry like on Enceladus, uh, which is a moon of Saturn, maybe in the subsurface oceans of Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, some chemistry is probably present in the subsurface of Mars. Um, So if this chemistry is pretty universal and uh, we see life here and we we can define sort of the strategies they survive with to extract energy and such, then we're kind of trying to piece together, could could they exist elsewhere in the universe in, in similar environments and such? Uh, so that's sort of the big catch-all goal of, of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and, and uh, how exactly we're sort of uh, trying to define that solution. Yeah, that's really interesting because like, I saw like some of the stuff that you did. I was like, oh yeah, this is like astrobiology. And then I'm like, oh. but then you said, oh yes, I'm out in the ocean studying deep sea stuff. And like, in my mind, I'm like, well, those seems completely, completely opposite. But that's really cool that you, there's like a connection there. Yeah. Astrobiology is a super cool field that uh, not, well, maybe a lot more people know about it lately. Uh, but when I started in it, it, it was still sort of a little bit obscure. Uh, but it's very interdisciplinary. So even though I'm in a department that in its name says it's microbiology and molecular genetics, I don't work with E. coli and I probably don't know E. coli molecular genetics that well, to be honest. But uh, to do the stuff that I have to do, I have to get really good at microbiology, but I also have to work with our collaborators and understand to a certain extent, like geology, geochemistry, oceanography, um, some, you know, aspects of uh, uh, biochemistry and like isotopic chemistry and things like that. Not like at an expert level, but enough to kind of compile it in how, you know, in an understandable form that relates to the problems I'm trying to solve. And um, that's sort of like a huge, interesting benefit of astrobiology that instead of folks being separated in different silos and they're kind of expert in their one little thing, mm-hmm. they get to really kind of reach out in the spider web. Uh, of collaborators from completely different disciplines and work on these really cool problems, whether it's, you know, hanging out on a ship in the middle of the ocean and and trying to do that with a bunch of people that you otherwise would not meet or um, other, other uh, uh, research field sites around the world. Yeah, that's really cool. So like how big is like the group that you were a part of, like roughly? Um, We're about 25 scientists or so. Uh, don't hold me on that number. Um, but, uh, these are folks that have been collaborating with each other for a while and they're spread from California all the way to Switzerland. And, uh, that's sort of the, the folks that I interact on, interact with on some regular basis and share data with, and, and they give me feedback on my data and such. And, um, I, I think the in, entire astrobiology community as a whole is, 
actually not that large in the U.S. Uh, like the folks that actually actively research and publish and, and do all that are probably close to a thousand folks mm-hmm. uh, that are that are sort of working together in the same spheres and same problems. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So kind of going back to like the work that you were saying out on like the ship, I'm kind of curious, like what does that sort of look like? Okay. So you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Like what, what does your experimenting sort of look like? Is it just like throwing sensors off the side of the boat? It goes really down and then you pull it up. I'm I'm assuming it's a little more sophisticated than that. Uh, You know, unsurprisingly or surprisingly, you're not that far off. Um, (laughs) So, uh, and, and, uh, funny thing is it always starts with, uh, at some point, you're on this boat thinking, I'm on a boat in the middle of the ocean. What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but uh, so you are right. So uh, to to some extent, you are throwing sensors off the side of the boat. Uh, very expensive sensors that are usually shared by multiple labs or, or groups. And uh, you're getting some bare bones raw data, like chemistry through the water column, Um Maybe you're detecting specific chemistries or you're trying to detect like a whole range of spe- uh, a spectrum of chemistries. Um, but uh, that's sort of data collection, just using sensor stuff. There is actual sample collection. So you could be collecting water samples uh, at uh, a unique site of interest. So in our case, if we're at Lost City, we'd be collecting not just the ocean water that's near the site, because we want to see what bugs are there or near the site, but we'd also be collecting the vent water directly from the site. Uh, So we would deploy a remote submersible uh, that has specifically designed equipment to very finely kind of pump and and collect that seawater that is as close as possible to the original vent water without the rest of the seawater that's around it. So Mm -hmm. you kind of get this whole gradient of sample collection. And then you bring it back on the ship, and uh, depending on who you ask, that's either the easy part or the hard part, depending on on what you have to do. So some folks immediately have to run experiments on fresh samples, and they could be doing culturing experiments, isotope experiments, what have you, uh, or doing gas experiments to try to get uh, more detailed information about the gas compositions, the dissolved gas compositions of all this stuff, or... If uh, we've collected, in our case, we collected chimney samples and water samples, so we wanted to preserve them to do other more sophisticated stuff that we couldn't necessarily do on the ship. Uh, So a lot of the shipboard time would actually be involved in the stabilization processing of those samples and making sure we're also coordinating with our partners about all the relevant metadata that we'd want to use down the line uh, from the specific time points that we've collected those uh, samples from. And other folks could be doing maybe... Um, uh, prototyping experiments. So um, these, uh, and I, I think I should go back and, and and kind of give some context. Usually, when these ships go, uh, that's like the end of a year years long process to get a, a ship and the time and the scientists together. So um, there's usually an entire diversity of things that are happening on this ship, and uh, they're probably very interdisciplinary because probably some of these sites. People visit once every 10 years or so. So a lot of people want to go. A lot of people want to try to test things, do things. Um, So there is no shortage of things to do. And if you have no experiments to do at that point, or you've already collected your samples, it's a 24-hour, 7 operation. So you're trying to look for things you can do, whether it's sweeping floors or helping other people with their experiments or um, logging data with a remote submersible crew or what have you. It's... it's, uh, 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 or or 
collecting nice pictures and, and, and mm-hmm. video, which is actually uh, super important. So there's a huge list of both really sophisticated, complicated things, but also very simple run-of-the-mill things that uh, uh, you would do on some of these ocean-going uh, expeditions. Yeah. How long are you out there for? So when we were at Lost City, um, we it took about nine days just to get there. Uh, so for, for context, it, it took the, uh, astronauts about three or four days to fly to the moon. It takes us long to get on a ship and <laughs> get to our study site. And, uh, when we had done it, we had, uh, hurricanes that were kind of circling us cause we were at the height of the Atlantic hurricane season at the time. Uh, so we only had about five and a half days on station to actually collect samples, do the science we needed to do, and then steam back off for another 10 days. So, uh, that's. Uh, just shy of a month uh, that you're at sea with about a week on site. Uh, but, you know, when you're on the way to sea and you're or when you're on the way to the site and you're coming back from the site, you're probably also doing experiments and setups and tear down and, and, and things like that. And uh, the last cruise I was on, we went to a different hydrothermal vent field uh, in the Gulf of California, which is uh, uh, sort of in that southern uh, Baja Peninsula uh, off of Mexico, extending off of California. And we were on the site, I believe, for about two-ish weeks, two and a half weeks. Uh, and that was about three or four days sailing to and three or four days sailing back. So uh, a little bit longer time on site, but still sort of uh, around the same uh, time span of being on the ship from start to finish. Okay. How, how many of these site visits have you been a part of? Uh, two so far. Uh, so I've only been to Lost City once and I've been to Guaymas Basin once. Um, and uh, both of those, I was very fortunate that they were opportunities that came from my sort of collaborative network where um, I had similar interests and uh, sort of hopes for things I wanted to do with samples and uh, sort of the right time and the right place thing kind of happened. And they're like, oh, hey, uh, I need your answer by tomorrow morning. Can you sail, you know, so many months down the line? Cause they need to figure out, you know, uh, ship spacing and experimental, uh, guidelines and things like that. And with lost city, um, that trip was actually supposed to happen sometime in like 2013. And then it was delayed till 2015. And then I had actually started with my PI, uh, around 2017, 2018, And that's when they had the go ahead to actually sail. And that was how I found out I was joining the lab. It was like, okay, so I uh, need you to go and collect samples for me. Oh, and by the way, you're joining the lab if you, if you still wanted to join. Uh, So (laughs) uh, that so far has been my two, my two uh, uh, ocean expedition uh, experiences. Okay. So was, did like COVID impact any of your work in any sense? Um. It did um, in multiple ways. Um, so uh, w- with the Lost City work, well, let's take a step back. In general, because this is such a collaborative group that I work with, both at Michigan State and outside Michigan State, uh, sort of having the social distancing and you know COVID mitigation protocols in place, you can't go and work with people across state lines as easily, let alone across international mm-hmm. uh, borders. So a lot of the things that we had planned in the pipeline sort of got put on hold because it didn't make much sense to <laughs> mm-hmm. um, wait on uh, a pandemic, which 
uh, is sort of unclear whether it's going to get worse or better to, to resolve and PhD uh, uh, times are, are very finite. So it kind of forced us to kind of take a step back and sort of reassess how we're doing a lot of our experiments. So unfortunately, some of the cooler things we had wanted to do, we couldn't do just because logistically it didn't make sense. And um, similar thing with the um, latest cruise I was on, because this this took place during the pandemic, there was a lot of quarantine protocols in place. And uh, it, 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 you know, again, you have a finite amount of time where you can do things. So uh, adding quarantines on both ends of a cruise uh, sort of limits your ability to do a lot of things and limits your ability to uh, collaborate and bring in folks to help you and, and vice versa. So it, it's definitely had an impact on both the science and the actual logistics of, of doing the science, unfortunately. Um, in addition to, I haven't seen some of the folks I've worked with in a while. So <laughs> we've, we've worked virtually, but we haven't actually been able to go to the same conferences or kind of have our meetings in those conferences and uh, work together like we normally would in person, which is, I think, an unfortunate side effect that isn't unique to me. Of course, it's mm-hmm. it's been very widespread. Yeah, interesting. So, what? So, was your original like undergrad degree in biology or microbiology? Uh, I had an undergrad degree in biology, which wasn't my wasn't really my primary degree or wasn't what I thought I would, I would specialize in. I actually, uh, my first degree was in art history. Uh, so I have two, two whole bachelors that, (laughs) um, sort of worked out in a weird way. Um, I, I had done the whole pre-med thing and I thought I was going to go to med school. And the thing they don't tell you a lot of, at least no one told me, or I didn't pay attention. I don't know, but you, you don't need a bio degree to be a pre-med. You just need to finish the bio requirements for your pre-medical, uh, uh, uh designation, uh, or requirements for whatever med schools you're applying for, but you could get a degree in anything. And I decided, well, that sounds great. I'll just <laughs> do all these science classes and then I'm going to do something I really love, which was art history, which is still very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of went through the whole, you know, med school application process and I had sort of a 11th hour epiphany that yeah, maybe I'm not really interested in medicine. And uh, uh, I had all these classes that could go towards a bio degree and very few classes that were left to actually get the rest of a bachelor's degree for bio. So I kind of bounced around life for a little bit with my art history degree and then uh, kind of did a few other things before it decided really I'm interested in biology and science and, and, and research and science and went back and finished um, my bio degree and uh, ended up really falling in love with research and sort of the whole process of being curious, which I, I think uh, we don't do a very good job of highlighting in undergrad that, you know, science is just a systematic way of being curious and mm-hmm. Uh, answering a lot of curious questions. And uh, yeah, that's sort of a, a weird way of finding my way back into science through art history. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, can't on that. So are you interested in just like the history of art? Or are you like an artistic person yourself that you like doing art? Like what is the, your relation there? Yeah. So I, I don't know what, uh, actually, no, I know very specifically what drove me to art history. So to answer your question very specifically, this is like about the history of art very broadly. That's what, that's what my degree is. And as, as it states in the name, 
Um, but what, what made me interested in it, um, and I'm not a very artistic person. I, I've dabbled in photography and cinematography and things like that. So I think like most people do at some point, um, I, I was more interested in a lot of these um, questions surrounding uh, just the value of art and the reactions people get about art. And the first class that really got me interested in it was sort of these general education requirements at my alma mater where you had to do some sort of uh, liberal arts class and it could have been, you know, uh, a film class, art class, whatever. And I picked art history and it was a, it was a survey of, uh, it was like prehistoric to uh, Neolithic art or Paleolithic art, something like that. And I took the class and I was like, holy crap, these are like, every every art piece we'll look at has like so many different levels of significance and messages and different ways you could analyze it. And that was actually my first exposure to research and this idea of being curious about something and trying to go back and learn about it. And uh, I actually developed an interest in cathedral architecture. Uh, so if uh, we didn't really have specializations in art, but that was sort of art history at, at the time uh, in my undergrad. So this is sort of the closest thing to a, speci- a specialization that I had or kind of a, a niche that I was interested in. And I was really super interested in how cathedrals over time served more functions than just a place of worship. You know, they were places of uh, community gathering. They were places of storytelling. They were places of um, sort of capturing the cultural moment or the, t- uh, the pulse of, of culture and community at the time. And those things weren't things that you would notice very quickly. There were things you had to actually develop a skill set to read the symbolism and, you know, the way the architecture was built or designed or sort of the evolution of one single cathedral over like a thousand years, which still blows my mind that these things also evolve uh, with the times. Um, and yeah, so that, that was sort of like how I, how I fell in love with it. And, and it, it just started with this one class that I thought was going to be the only class I was ever going to take in this thing called art history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I really like that. I always like hearing about, you know, different people who have different connections to seemingly like unrelated sort of like fields or or interests and hobbies. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, unsurprisingly, this is like a thing common with scientists. Like I'm still, I still haven't met very many scientists that had like a very linear track, like, Oh, mm-hmm. I got out of the womb and I was interested in getting a PhD, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, they've always kind of done something else that led them into science. And it was sort of always a surprising, Oh, and then I realized I like science and it wasn't mm-hmm. this thing that I thought science was when I was an undergrad or younger or older or whatever it is. So, yeah, exactly. I saw on like one of your bios somewhere too, that you were into aviation. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I am a pilot. <laughs> I I love flying, and um, probably when I'm I'm not working, I'm I'm out flying a plane somewhere, and probably when I'm working, I'm thinking about flying. So, <laughs> um, not to say I don't love the work I do, but uh, yeah, I've been flying. I took my first first flight in 2004, my first flying lesson, and I've uh, been flying ever since. So it's almost almost 20 years been 18 years kind of crazy yeah so Um, how does 
So how does that work? Like, do you have your own plane? Do you rent a plane? Like, how do how do you just like you know what yeah. today Saturday I'm going to go fly. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's some mixture. Um, uh, planes are interesting. Um, you can own your own plane. You can rent a plane. You can lease a plane. You can own a plane with a bunch of other people, and then so this thing that is really expensive on its own is suddenly not as expensive. It could be no more expensive than a little, um, Honda CRV or, or whatever. So it's, it's actually more affordable than a lot of people think if you do it right. Um, and, uh, so I have kind of a, 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 a similar fractional situation with, with a few different aircraft or I have access to rent aircraft. And then the way you, rent the aircraft is per hour if you're rated for the aircraft. So there's a lot of obviously FAA regulation. I, I can't just go and like mm-hmm. rent to 747, for example, nor would I be able to afford to. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so you, you generally rent or, or pay, you know, a money pot uh, for the operation of the airplane per hour. Uh, and uh, that's generally per hour that the airplane is running. Uh, so the second the ignition's on till the second it's off, that's how much you're paying for it, which is kind of cool. And uh, I like to joke around that, um, you know, short of buying an airline ticket to cross the mountains, really, I have access to like the southern tip of Florida within a four hour flight that I could just fly myself to, which is kind of cool. Uh, so if the weather's good or um, I'm feeling it or a couple friends want to go somewhere, we'll split the cost of the airplane and will hop in and go on a day trip to Mackinac Island or uh, a few weeks back uh, uh, a friend uh, wanted a buddy to move an airplane down south so I ended up down in Huntsville <laughs> uh, in a day and came back the next day through St. Louis and was back in Michigan Sunday night and it was uh, a pretty fun time. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was just wild to think about <laughs> or at least for me it is. Um, yeah, very interesting. So Right now, so obviously you were busy you know, with all your work you know, the last couple of months. It sounds like you're a busy person. So like, what are some, like, do you have like additional hobbies or activities that you do to take a break from school research or anything like that? Yeah. Um, so when I started uh, my PhD, I did not have many. Well, I had a few hobbies, but I was just like all in, like 24-7. I'm just in the lab. And then I guess the... The, the the more I matured, I realized it's actually not a very sustainable way of doing your research. Um, so I try to limit myself to no more than like 60 hours a week actually working in the lab because that's really about how much I could be effective anymore. And it's just crappy science that I'm doing. And that's not good for anyone involved. Um, so I, I try to shut down as soon as I leave the lab. And uh, unless it's something absolutely critical, obviously, that I have to do. Um, and then... When I'm not flying, uh, I like to go on a lot of hikes, run, uh, do you know the stereotypical sports stuff. But uh, I also like to do a lot of camping and road tripping. Um, I uh, surprisingly actually enjoy traveling across the country by car a little bit more than I than I do by airplane. You get to enjoy a lot of sights and sounds, and and my wife and I uh, really enjoy car camping. So we'll pick some direction we want to go to and make sure we have a weekend or enough time and responsibilities are sort of taken care of and we'll we'll pick that direction and go and sort of explore that part of the country and explore the sights and sounds and um 
uh, sort of that's that's like our our little thing that that we've been doing a lot more lately. And I mean, getting back into photography and um, kind of kind of getting in touch with that bit of artistic uh, part of my life that I kind of forgotten for a few years. Um, sort of a lot of stuff that I don't necessarily need to do with with folks given the pandemic lately and uh, stuff that's just very um, different than <laughs> what I do in the day to day. Something that's almost the polar opposite of thinking about science. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. So sort of like wrapping things up a little bit here. Uh, I like to ask people, you know, do you have any advice or tips of wisdom you would give either like undergraduates thinking about applying to grad school or, or like first year grad students kind of like adjusting to the grad school lifestyle? Yeah. So um, for undergrads that are thinking about grad school or aren't quite sure what to do yet, it is totally okay. I think, you know, in hindsight, you know, I'm in my 30s now. So if I look back at my 20s, <laughs> it was just like, oh, this is pretty normal. Everybody kind of goes through this. I don't know what to do with my life thing. Do I really want to do this? Do I not want to do this? And I think uh, the biggest piece of advice is um, kind of explore a little bit. That's There was like a magic spot between undergrad and whatever you do after that is really great for, uh, you know, figuring out what you really like and what you really don't like doing. And uh, there's no time wasted doing that at all. A lot of folks worry that, oh, but I have to, I have to like get started on my career and do all this stuff and, you know, obviously be a productive member of society, but, you know, make sure you're trying to do something or trying to explore doing something that will actually make you content and, and happy at the end of the day. And as far as grad students that are starting that have decided to take the plunge into grad school, uh, learn work-life separation very early um, and make sure that your advisor uh, is also uh, supportive of kind of a, a good balance of, of work and life. Uh, everybody has lives outside of the lab. And at the end of the day, very few people actually care about what we do. It's kind of unfortunate, but, you know, it, it's not like the world will end if an experiment didn't happen today or, or something didn't get written up today. Um, our mental health and our physical health is, is more important, especially, you know, our family's health and our family's well-being and being able to balance that is going to make for a happier person at the end of the day and a happier advisor also at the end of the day that is going to have an, a, a productive grad student and a productive lab. And um, it's just a good thing to have that work-life balance from the very beginning and get used to setting hard stops about, about stuff and personal boundaries and, and sticking to them instead of, uh, accidentally burning out. <laughs> That's, uh, I will say that until the day I die. Do not burn <laughs> out. Do not, do not burn yourself out. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for, for sharing and for coming on. It was really interesting learning about all the, all the stuff that you've done. Anytime, Brian. And, uh, it's uh, fun talking about it.